wonderful today is we can come quickly to Philippians. Now, Philippians is one of the four prison epistles which Paul wrote while he was in prison. This is one of the nicer episodes to read in the sense like that it was not addressing problems among Christians in the church. It was not attacking false doctrines that had come into the church. And it's not so difficult also to understand this uh, episode because it's not deep doctrine, but mostly relational. There's some doctrine, but mostly it's teaching us about our relationships with one another and our walk with the Lord rather than hard to understand doctrine, right? Then, uh, of course, you know, the hardest to fully grasp is justification by faith alone. And then union with Christ. We are in Christ, in heavenly places. Wow, there was like Ephesians, like you still have to struggle to figure it out and probably take a, forever to figure that out. Now, this uh, book, this episode is written to the Christians in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a very large city on a very major trade route into Europe, right? It was, Philippi is on European soil, okay? And so it was a strategic foothold, the first church, as far as we know, on European soil was in Philippi. And Paul was sent by God to this strategic city because it would then be his foothold to enter into Europe. Now it was named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip. So Philippi was such a major city that it was made a Roman colony. In simple words, any, anything happened in Philippi, those who far away from Rome, this is Greece, right, was considered as if it was on, in Rome, right? And because it was so Roman in character, many retired Roman soldiers decided to live there. And because they were loyal to the empire, they were, of course, always anti-Christian because for them, Caesar is God to the Romans. But comes this simple faith which says, no, 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 Christ is God. So in this place, the church had to undergo a lot of persecution and thankfully it became instead of a weak church a very strong church with very few problems and also very much a part of the mission endeavor by supporting by being with paul in his mission effort All right how did this church start if you have time read the book of acts reread it chapter 16 and you will see that Paul was moving across Turkey, what was called Asia Minor in the old days, and he was going further and further west, sort of headed towards Europe. And of course, he had no plan to go into Europe. There was a kind of water between Asia Minor, Turkey, and, and Europe, Eastern Europe. And he had no plan to go. He, in fact, planned to go to another place called Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit stopped him from going to Bithynia and then led him further and further west. And then he stands at this place and he gets a vision, a vision of someone from Macedonia, obviously dressed like a Macedonian is a vision, and saying, come over and help us. So Paul goes over into Macedonia, Greece, and then comes to the city of Philippi. Now, Paul's typical tactic is always to go to the synagogue to start. That's where you have 
from potential men of peace. But there was no synagogue in the city of Philippi, very Roman city. And so he decided to go to a certain place where he expected to see a prayer meeting on the Sabbath day. Jews would go on the Sabbath when there's no synagogue, they would go to some place to celebrate their Sabbath. And he found a bunch of ladies, I think, um, having a Jewish Sabbath service or prayer meeting, whatever you want to call it. And so he went there and he shared the gospel to them. And a lady called Lydia, one a businesswoman from Asia Minor, from Turkey, had gone over to sell cloth. She sold a special type of cloth called purple cloth, kind of dye. It's got a unique kind of uh, dye. And so Lydia got saved and her household got saved. And then as Paul was sharing the faith in Philippi, a demon-possessed girl comes along and starts disturbing Paul in his evangelism efforts. They keep saying, listen to this man, he's a, he's a servant of the high God, he's a servant of the high God, and Paul cannot get things done, and this girl is coming, she's saying something good, but because she's demon-possessed, she is disturbing his meeting, and so Paul casts out the demon from this girl. The problem is that this girl was employed by somebody as a, like a fortune teller because she had this evil spirit in her. And when Paul cast out the demon, this girl is now of no commercial value to her old boss. And so the old boss complained to the city and Paul was arrested for, they, they accused Paul of bringing another, uh, uh, something that was against Rome, which is true right? because Christ is God rather than Caesar is God. And so they arrested him, they beat him, they put him in jail. And the Bible goes on to tell us in jail at midnight, imagine at midnight in jail, you know, it's not exactly like electric lights and all that. Huh? In those days at 6, 5 p.m., the light, the place got dark, the total darkness, and they're singing, having a, a praise worship service, Paul and his gang, you know, his, his team having a worship service at midnight in a darkened jail. And as they sing, there's an earthquake and all the walls are crumbling, the doors are all uh, dislodged and the jailer screams and says, oh my goodness, what's happening? All right, because it's a jailer, if any Roman law, if any prisoner escapes, the jailer is crucified. Not kill, huh? crucified. The jailer is freaked out. I mean, I don't want to be crucified. So he screams, what must I do to be saved? I don't know why he screams that out, you know, because he probably heard Paul preaching the whole night there. He's sitting outside listening to the gospel. And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you and your household, and he trusted the Lord. So Paul spent a night probably sharing the gospel with him and his family and his household and they were baptized the next day so now paul has lydia's family and the jail jailer's family and that was probably the call for this new church now the problem is paul's in jail and the next day the magistrate said i ah, just let them go just let them go they just nuisance asked them to get out of the city and paul said what do you mean you asked me to get out of the city do you know i'm a roman citizen yes and you arrest me illegally as a Roman citizen without, you beat me, you put me in jail without trial. That's not acceptable in Roman law. And now you just ask me to go. No way. You come and apologize. So the, the magistrates and all came to apologize to Paul. And then they asked him to leave the city. Now, what, what does that all mean? That means that Paul had a very short time in the city. Probably spent quite some time with Lydia's family, and then a little time with the jail, jailer's family, and had to leave. So you think, well, this church will die, but it didn't. This church prospered. He had made disciples of Lydia and the jailer that they had learned how to share the gospel, just watching Paul in that short period of time, 
boldly and effectively share the gospel, and they probably did it. And so a church grew up in Philippi. And Paul never saw this church again until this letter was written, right? And this church, though it's persecuted, how do we know it's persecuted? It's Roman. And the Romans were very strong against the Christians because they were too competing. Who is God, Caesar or Christ? But they continued to grow. And then when this Philippian church heard years later that Paul was imprisoned, what did they do? They sent money to Paul. And not only money, because they had actually done that before in other times when they heard about Paul being here and there, they had sent financial donations. Imagine it's a persecuted church, all right? And yet they sent financial support to Paul. And this time, when Paul was in Rome, in uh, sorry, when Paul was in prison, they sent money and they sent a guy to carry the money. And the guy just didn't deliver the money. The guy said, I'm sent by the church to minister to you in prison. All right? Because Paul needed help in the prison. You know, in the prison, you're shackled. You can't do a lot of things. The, jail, uh, the guys jailing may not be very cooperative. So they sent a man called Epaphroditus with the money, quite a substantial sum, I think, and to be his helper, assistant, while he was in jail. Now, the problem was, Epaphroditus got sick when he was taking care of Paul, and he was so sick, he nearly died. And then rumors went back to the Philippine church that Epaphroditus is going to die. So Paul said, no, 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 Epaphroditus, when you get well, I want to make sure you go back and tell the people you're okay, right? Because he, he didn't want them to worry about uh, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus got well in jail by God's grace, not because of Paul's healing. Paul couldn't heal Christians. That's a funny part. It's a funny part. Paul healed a lot of people in, in the process of evangelizing the lost. But Paul couldn't help Timothy. He told Timothy, you help your stomach by drinking wine. I don't know how to fix it. There's another guy called Trophimus. He, another one whose associates he couldn't heal. Epaphroditus he couldn't heal. He said, you nearly died, Epaphroditus, right? So this, I, this idea, all right, that uh, Paul could heal any. God used healing usually as a mark for the unbelievers to help them see who God is, right? So anyway, when he, Epaphroditus got well, Paul wrote this letter, the one you're going to read now, to the Philippine church. Right? Thanking them for Epaphroditus and for the support. So this letter was not written in response to problems in the church, but it's basically a thanksgiving letter. Right? And a letter with some useful words of encouragement to them. Right? So I hope you see the background of this letter. So it's a very different kind of letter. Let's quickly go in. And see, since it's only four chapters, we can go through some verses. I like this, and I'm basically a verse-by-verse -verse guy. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I only need to underline the word partnership. Now, in viewer King James user, you see the word fellowship. The word fellowship is used more than the word partnership. But the word fellowship has much less correct meaning than partnership. Okay? So because in the church today we have always ladies' fellowship, men's fellowship, this fellowship, let's have fellowship, you know, we use the word very loosely. Basically we mean let's spend a bit of time together. Now the word fellowship or partnership in the Greek is koinonia. Now koinonia basically means partnership and what also it means is very close partnership. That if one partner suffers, the other suffers. That's basically what it means. Alright? While our fellowship in church is, it's just chit-chat time. And then you go your way, I go my way. If you have a problem, basically it's your problem. You can tell me about it, but basically it's your problem. Alright? In Koinonia, no, your problem is my problem. Basically, it's like the body. That's why the church is often called the body. Ecclesia is called the body. 
one part suffers, one part is hurt, the other part suffers. You, you cannot have it dislodged. It's not separated. Alright? Okay? Your little toe suffers, your whole body suffers with it. Your one little tooth suffers, your whole body suffers with it. Alright? So, partnership. When we say fellowship, let's have fellowship. No, 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 no. God doesn't want us to just have a fellowship. Unsafe people have a lot of fellowship. In fact, they have more fellowship than us. They can have a bottle of beer and talk the whole night. Right? But, we want in the church, it should be partnership. We are a body. Caring for one another. One goes down, the other helps. Right? Support one another. Suffers along, rejoices along. Okay? So, I hope you see that, that word there. Then in verse, chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, verse 8 For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Yearn with the affections. And if King James uses the bowels, like inside is moved, right? Like, I long to see you. I'm dying to see you. That's the words we use in English. Alright? Paul has that kind of affection for the Philippian believers because we are all one body. Again, this is very strange in our uh, Christian life, so to speak, or church life. Fellowship is chit-chat. Love means I don't hate you, we don't have quarrels, we're okay, right? No, that's all quite different. And then Paul goes on to talk about his imprisonment because you're, of course, concerned about Paul in prison. And Paul tells us in chapter 1, don't worry about my imprisonment, okay? It's turned out well. The fact I'm in prison is that I have a captive audience. They thought they, got, they captured me. I'm stuck with them. But actually, the poor guards are stuck with me. Every eight hours, I think, they change shift. And the guards are literally there with Paul eight hours a day. And so Paul has a the guard cannot go out. Paul cannot go out. It's like a lockdown during COVID. And Paul is sharing with them. And he says the whole imperial guard knows about Christ and more. Others do know. In other words, Paul now had a captive audience in Caesar's palace. Right? That's quite amazing. I mean, in the Roman palace. Okay. Then he goes on to say. Uh, you all worry about me dying, right? I mean, because I could be executed. That's quite, quite a fact, right? But for me, in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, this is something quite amazing. And this should be a Christian truth, right? When we live, what's our purpose? Glorify Christ. Live. Is Christ. As long as I'm alive, I have one goal, to lift up Christ. Well, for me to die is gain. Labor is gone with my Lord forever, right? So, for Paul, he was actually eager to die, but willing to stay back and serve. Now, some very good Christians say, I'm willing to die. It's very different from Paul. Willing to die. Paul didn't say, I'm willing to die. I'm eager to die. Because I'll be with the Lord. But I'm willing to stay. For most Christians, it's, well, I'm willing to die, but actually I'm eager to stay. So for them, death is a sacrifice for the Lord. For Paul, it's the other way around. To be alive is a sacrifice. Because that keeps me away from the Lord. Can you see the orientation of Paul? And that should be our orientation. After all, heaven is so much better. Being with the Lord is so much better than being with sinful men, right? <laughs> okay? So anyway, so for Paul, that was his dream. But he said, I think I'm not going to get what I want. I think God's going to let me live on so that I can serve you all and visit you and encourage you and write letters to you, etc. Alright? Then, Paul goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 27, So when 
People say, oh, that man sacrificed for the Lord. He gave his life for the Lord. I'm not so sure. Some of these people wanting to go home, right? Being with the Lord is better. Huh? So it's like many people say, APC, you sacrifice. You give up your medical profession. And now I say, uh, I don't think I can call it a sacrifice. I call it an upgrade, right? Serving God is definitely better than serving a corporation or serving uh, your business or whatever, you know? Upside down world, huh? Mm. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's dream for the Philippians is that you guys unite and strive together for the faith of the gospel. They were under persecution, the Philippian church, right? They needed each other like a body to encourage one another to, pro to continue pro uh, promoting and proclaiming the gospel, okay? So that was his goal. You must do it together, strive together, underline the word together, huh? right? Uh, as with one heart, one mind. Let's move on to chapter 2. And verse 2 to 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others all right so paul knew that as they were having to serve together there's always this tendency for people to get irritated with others all right it's very natural in any team some who can are stronger look the others as weaker some who are smarter look the others as less smart some who are very decisive look others who are less decisive and we tend to look down on others and that's where this unity comes up all right so paul says no 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 please you serve together with one mind all right not with in humility count others more significant than yourselves wow that's not easy how can we do that we always think we are right. You know, if I'm a decisive guy, I think indecisive people are use useless. If I, if I think, all right, that I'm a good speaker, then I think people who can't speak are useless. But they have other talents, all right? So you always think your, your gift is the most significant. How can we do that? Look at verse 5 to verse 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this mind, but it's also in you. It's, in, it's yours in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The only way we can have this mind that doesn't exalt ourselves and want to maintain our superiority over others is to have the mind of Christ, right? And what is the mind of Christ? It tells us here in this little few words. It's actually a nice poem about how beautifully Christ humbled himself, right? It says here in verse 5, though he is God, no question, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So though he had a very, the highest possible status as God, he didn't want to hang on to the privileges of those of that status. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He never stopped being God, but he didn't hang on to the privileges of God, right? And being born in the likeness of man. Now, in the likeness of man, what does that mean? 
he was like man. Though 100% every time he was on earth, he was God. He's 100% God, 100%. He never was less than that. But he put aside the privileges. What are the privileges? Right? Number one, the glory in heaven. I mean, in heaven, the angels were all around him, praising him day and night. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He came to earth, put away all those privileges. No need anybody to carry my bag and sing praises of me. As God, he's omnipresent. He was, could be everywhere, anytime. As man, he could only be one place at a time. Wow. So God became man. Okay. As God is omnipotent, he made the heaven and the earth. Jesus created heaven and earth by his word. As man, he walked from place to place. And any miracle he did, he did it as helped by the Holy Spirit. That's why he never did any miracle until he started his ministry at the age of 30. When he turned water to wine, that was his first miracle. Before that, as a child, he could have done it. But he put all those privileges aside. All right? So please understand that he never became less than God, but he put aside the privileges. Let me give you an example that I can maybe say. All right? Maybe when I was running my practice, okay? Okay, I'm the head of the company. I'm the founder of this organization. You, The driver drives you to office. You go to office. Everything's ready for you. Everybody, you know, is ready to... To, to call you, yes, boss, jump here, jump there. Then you go on a mission trip. You're nobody. And you don't want anybody to know you're anybody. Right? You put aside. But does that mean that when I went on a mission trip, I have no more PC? I'm the same guy. I'm exactly the same guy. But I put away those privileges. I don't call myself doctor. I don't dress like a doctor. I don't expect anybody to jump when I do anything. I do everything myself, right? Why? So that I can be part of the people. That was what Jesus did. All right? So it was a choice. It was an attitude of willingness to put away what we have so that we can be with those around us. We can work alongside people, right? You know that people go on a mission trip and they want the privileges still. They want everybody to, to look up to them, make sure the car is waiting for them, make sure the, the, the hotel is the right type of hotel. And you know, the poor poor guys are helping on this mission trip, spend more time helping this guy than this guy helps the missions, you know? <laughs> right? Why? Because they don't know how. They, they still want those privileges. Jesus, when he came to this earth, came hundred percent man okay this is amazing all right and up to today let me tell you for all eternity from two thousand years ago jesus has put away those privileges so that he can be with us okay that is the mind of christ <clears throat> so we see here how can we have this mind of christ well, i think i'm so much smarter i can I know more of the Bible than those guys. Then the moment you think that way, you just think of Christ. How he could just be with the rest. Blend in with the rest. Almost totally blend in. That they had to pay 30 pieces of silver to identify him. Alright? Now we go on to see in chapter 2, verse 12. Very often misunderstood verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Many people read it as work for your salvation. Work out your salvation is different from work for your salvation. Right? Salvation was worked for by Christ. He did it for us. But when we got it, now we have to work out my salvation. Let me give you an example, okay? Sometimes I'm very privileged to have a good mentor. 
Okay, let's just say a men, medical mentor, right? He just, out of his sheer generosity, comes to help me. You know, when I started my business, there was a man, okay, a business consultant, an American man, out of his sheer generosity, helped me to start my medical practice. Okay? And he never expected a thing from me. I never even expected him to help me, but he just helped me get my basic business principles. Now, did I work for their skills? No, I didn't. He worked it into me. He kept talking to me, teaching me, but it was my responsibility now that he had blessed me with so much business, I had to work it out. I hope you understand what it is. So we are not working for salvation. We work out what we have got in freely. Right? Now, in some Bibles, it's poorly translated. The Bahasa Indonesia Bible, it almost seems you have to work for your salvation, which is really the opposite. Right? Now, how do you work out your salvation? All right. It is one of the uh, ways you work it out is do oh, verse 14, do all things. With, okay, sorry, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God not only works his salvation in us gives us the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can give us the, the means to work it out. Wow, right? He works our, we're justified by faith and then the Holy Spirit comes out and helps to sanctify us by faith. As we trust the Holy Spirit in us, then the life of the Holy Spirit can come seen through us. And one of the effects of it is that we will Stop grumbling, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. One of the ways that we people know we are believers is God works in us, right? A new kind of lifestyle that doesn't have much grumbling and disputings. What are grumblings and disputings? Eh? Always grumbling about others and petty quarreling with others. That's a very, that's a mark of our own nature. Why do we grumble? Because we think we deserve better. Ah, the service is no good. Ayah, why are they so slow? In other words, you got to serve me, guys. Right? Disputing is like, why are they so stupid? My way is right. You know, but after we have Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, and we work it out. We work out the life of Christ, right? That we don't expect privileges, We're willing to put it aside. And we want to humble ourselves, right? And don't think we have the smartest guys in the, in the room, right? Okay, and then at the end of chapter 2, it gives two examples of such wonderful people who just served and served. One was Timothy, and then the other was this man, Epaphroditus. Both of them were beautiful examples of people who just gave them life, their lives humbly, serving quietly, right? Timothy was one, and Epaphroditus the other. Then we go to chapter 3. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Well, that's a very strong word to the Jews. Huh? It's a curse. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What's Paul telling them? Paul's telling them, be careful. Huh? Be careful of those guys who come and tell you you need to be circumcised. Remember in Galatians? They're still around. <laughs> Every time the Jews come, they keep trying to convince the new believers that faith in Christ alone, not enough. You need other conditions. If you want to be truly a believer, you need the full gospel. All right? And the full gospel, they add new rules. 
start with circumcision, then food rules, and then 613 rules in the Torah, and then one million other man-made rules, right? And the end, Christ is lost somewhere. And then it's me obeying the law, right? So be very careful. Works always creeps in, right? Legalism creeps in as a condition of salvation. It's two ends. One says, no need to fulfill the law. One, all right, says you must fulfill every word of the law. The correct way is trust Christ. And then Christ will give you the strength to fulfill the most important law, the law of Christ. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two important laws you need. And when you got those laws, you don't need to learn 613. Every time you see a neighbor, you say, how would Christ serve him? And then you would do the same. Right? Now, so we see circumcision, law, legalism, rules, regulations, always the temptation to keep adding to that. The law of Christ is the best. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, reminds them of their salvation by faith, eh? because works keeps creeping in. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is preaching again justification by faith, not by works of the law, right? And then Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. What does it mean? Let's go to verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what's Christianity all about again? The walk. The walk. Walk like me, Paul says. I try to walk like Christ. Try to walk like Christ. Alright? Not just know Him intellectually. Know Him experientially every day in your life as you walk like him you say what do you walk like him what do you mean walk like him again you talk like that what make yourself empty yourself of all your arrogance pride and self you want people to look up to you see you as clever smart different exceptional stop that just humble yourself like christ Make yourself, all right, humble like Christ and become like man. The God who became man, quietly serving man as a man, ordinary man, not the big boss throwing commandments. No, no, no. Just that. Try to walk like that. Paul says, okay? One reason why Paul was always persecuted because they looked down on him. He doesn't look like the scholar. He doesn't look like the leader. He, you know, he's so ordinary. That's exactly what they said of Jesus. Can he be the Messiah? Right? And you know, in all this, you are looking at the character of God. He's everywhere and yet we don't know. He's serving everyday us and we don't know. He's serving us humbly. We always think God serves us when there's a miracle. No, day in, day out. The humble God serving us humbly, right? So walk, try to walk like Jesus walked among men, not on top of men. 
How do you know the phacos, right? Chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So who are the enemies of the cross? How do you know? They're going to have a label? No, 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 no. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. How do you know these fakes, these enemies of the cross? Very strong word. Very simple. Right? Their God is their belly. They do all things to satisfy their appetites. And their mind, their mind is on earthly things. What are earthly things, tell me? Status, reputation, possessions, privileges, comforts, all these things. How do you know a man is serving God? People ask me, do you think this guy is serving God? I said, no, I don't think so. I said, how do you know? Why you, why you read people's, how do you know his heart? Maybe he wants to serve God. I say, well, if he minds earthly things, he wants a fancy car, fancy clothes, fancy hairstyle, you know, fancy penthouse, fancy uh, uh, whatever, right? That's what earthly people want. They mind those things. His mind is always on those things. Always, every time you see him, he's got a new style, a new, new, you know, then you know. He's concerned about those things. He's an enemy of the cross. Oh, you're so harsh. Uh. Please, la, read the Bible, uh, okay? <clears throat> Stop me judging. That's what God said. How do you know, all right? <clears throat> We go on to see chapter uh, 4. Thank God for the Bible. Huh? We don't need the Bible has to be our guide. Chapter 4, we see a little problem. I verse 2. I entreat you a diet and I entreat syndicate to agree in the Lord. He begs them. Entreat, I plead with you both, please just agree. So there were two ladies there who obviously had some differences. One thought she was right, and the other said, I am right, and the other one said, I am right. And they both made a lot of difficulty for the church. Now, this is very common. I mean, these are not major problems, but they can cause, lead to major problems. You get a false teacher coming in, everybody can uh, deal, kick up the false teacher. What do you do with two very faithful women who serve God? And they are faithful women, you read on in this passage very faithful but they're always quibbling with one another right so what do you do that's exactly why Paul wrote this letter be humble like Christ all right you don't need always to have the limelight you don't need always that people say you're right you're right all right well she thinks I'm not right no need people think you're right just do what you need to do if people don't think you're right it's okay Right? No big deal. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So he gives a command. I say rejoice. You say so easy to rejoice. I got plenty of worries, you know. All right? So we go and uh, look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. <laughs> Paul says, rejoice. And then people say, how to rejoice? I have these worries. My son, my marriage, my job, right? And Paul gives the formula. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about those things. How? How not to worry? Don't worry. Just like that. Wipe, wipe it out. No, no. Paul gives a formula. Be anxious to nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Everything, including in your worries. Pray and supplicate with thanksgiving. Right? So the formula to clear out worries is not say, I don't have worries, I'm putting it aside. No. It's replace the worry. Every time worry comes in, you pray and thank God for what you have. Okay? You lost your job. You're worried. So what do you do? 
pray, God, please help me to get another job. But thank you. At the Thanksgiving, I still got food on the, in the fridge. I still got clothes on my back. I still got a roof over my head. I still got health. Thank you, God. You know, the moment you have a worry, pray your prayer request and then thank God. That's your cure for worry. Right? Then the worry comes back one minute later. Repeat. Comes back three minutes later. Repeat. That's the only way to cure worry. Huh? Mm. Then you will be rejoicing because you now have a thanksgiving attached. Now let's go on. This is very important because it's very practical. Many people worry all the time and they don't know what to do. They're kids, there are so many problems in life. 4 verse 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? So, what do you do? You replace every worry with a prayer and then you learn to focus on things to praise. Look at the sky. Wow, beautiful sky. Praise God for it. Heard a bird singing. Wow, nice song, free song. Praise God for it. What all these beautiful things around us? Think on those things. There's a lot of beautiful things around us to think on. Though there may be one worry in your life, there are 1,000 nice things to focus your mind on. Right? That's the formula. Simple as that, okay? But not our habit. Our habit is you focus on the problem, you focus on the problem, you don't pray, okay? You don't thank God for what you already have, you don't praise God for the million wonderful things around you that you could focus on, but you have to focus on your worry. I don't know why. All right, chapter 11, chapter 4, sorry, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is thanking them for the gift he gave. And he says, actually, I'm so thankful to you guys for giving it, but actually I don't need it because I've learned to live very simply. Whether I have a lot, I'm thankful for what I have. When I have little, I'm also content with the little I have. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, it says having food and coverings, that means clothing, house, let us therewith be content. The greatest skill you can have, the greatest attitude you can have probably is contentment. Right? A contented person is always happy. Always. You can't take it away from him. He's contented. A greedy person is always unhappy because you could never satisfy greed. It's a bottomless pit. 3,000 shoes, I still want the other one shoe I don't have. I conquer the whole world, but there's the underwater, the, the corals and the fish I haven't conquered. You know, it's, it's endless. Greed is the greatest cause of dissatisfaction. Contentment is the greatest cause of satisfaction. And yet we are taught greed. And in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him which strengthens me. Now this verse is used very frequently by people totally out of context. Paul wrote this. Is Actually, he can say, he said, whether I have a lot or little, all right? I'm happy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, in this state of having plenty or little, I can do all that God wants me to do. I can be as happy as I want to be. I can serve God as effectively as I want to be in whether I have a lot of money or little money. But this verse is used by people who like to drama Right? There's some people say, I can remove COVID. 
How come you can remove COVID? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My goodness, are you taking this a bit out of context? <laughs> all right, I can do all things, whatever they want, no. All right. Just be careful. The text taken out of context. The context of I can do all things is that whatever condition God gives us, right? God, we can do all the things God wants us to do. Whether we have a lot of money or little money, a lot of comfort or little comfort, right? It's not that I can go and uh, demand anything I want from God, right? You know, there's a lot of these hucksters going around and making a fortune out of it. How do I know they're hucksters? They mine, their mind is on earthly things. Look at the houses they live, the clothes they wear, the aeroplanes they fly in. You know, all right? No need to ask more questions. I don't need to ask, right? I don't need to x-ray and look at their heart. And then finally, Paul says to them something about giving. He says in 17, verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You know, when they gave to Paul, Paul was thankful, he should be, but he was already contented. He had, in the jail, they fed him anyway. <laughs> well, there was enough food in the jail, right? In the shelter. He had security in the jail. He had audience to preach to, you know. He was content there. He didn't need more. I mean, you give me more money, what can I do? I'm stuck in jail anyway, <laughs> all right? Then he said, uh, actually, your gift to me, right? Bless me, but actually, it blesses you more. It's kind of very unique. When you give to the poor, the one who is blessed is not the poor, you know. Get it right in God's economy. The one who blesses you. The poor satisfies his belly for a few minutes. You have the eternal reward. So what did we learn in Philippians? I've learned the mind of Christ. Lowly. Quietly. Serving. That's the God I have. He serves me every day. In the littlest things. And I don't even know he's serving me. What an amazing God. Not just the agape love of God. The humble, silent, ever-serving God. Who I often don't recognize. And the Philippines has taught me about this God. And hopefully I can be a little more like this God, this Jesus Christ whom I serve. God bless you.